Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Too often when talking about the media or even the larger political and social issues shaping the country, we engage in a broad discussion of ideas of policy and how the levers of power in government and of the media that's covering it actually works. What we often forget is that all of this is made up of people, people who bring to the exercise of power and the reporting on it, their own values, education, and personal history. And those people shape the way the world turns. Sometimes when we're caught up in the cult of celebrity of politicians and media personalities, we forget why it matters. We also never stop to look at how the people doing those jobs today are fundamentally different from those that did it 20, 30, or 50 years ago. In that transition lies much of what's wrong with government and the media today. It's how we lost sight of the power of class, why we've tried to bury class differences in racial differences, and why being woke, guilty, and condescending lie at the heart of so much of our current polarization. If all of this sounds too nuanced, my guest, Batia Unger-Saragan, is going to help us understand how it's shaping our media and our democracy. Batia Unger-Saragan is the deputy opinion editor of Newsweek, and before that, she was the opinion editor of The Forward. She has written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, and other publications, and has appeared in numerous media outlets. She holds a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, and it is my pleasure to welcome Batia Unger-Saragan here to talk about her book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Batia, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, man, Jeff, that, that intro was so eloquent. It was so much more eloquent than anything I wrote in the book. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so beautifully put. It, what you said about how so many of our problems can be sourced back to the stories we're not telling and, you know, the pressures that we're not acknowledging about class and how that influences everything from the stories we tell about ourselves to our politics. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. One of one of the fundamental ideas and one of the things that leads to this proliferation of, of wokeness, particularly in the media, is a point that you make in the book that journalism as a profession has over the past 30, 40 years gone through a transition in terms of the people that are engaged in it, that it was once essentially a blue-collar business when we think of people like whether it's Walter Winchell or Jimmy Breslin or so many of the people that, that were part of the, the journalism profession for so many years to what it is today, which is a much more elitist profession. Talk about that first. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for so long, journalism in America was really a working class trade. It was something that you didn't go to college to do. It didn't have a lot of glamour associated with it. It was something you really picked up on the job, often being taught by somebody, an editor who also didn't have a college degree. You know, for, for example, in, in 1937, a survey of the most elite journalists in America, the Washington reporting cohort, found that less than half of them had a college degree and a lot of them hadn't even gone to high school, you know, not even a high school degree. And that didn't matter because the job of telling the great American story involved going out there and talking to Americans and listening to what they had to say. Now, fast forward to 2015 
And 92% of American journalists now have a college degree. And increasingly, that college degree is from the most elite institutions. And you have to really come from money today to break into journalism. You have to be able to take unpaid internships all through college. You have to be able to take a starting salary of something like $35,000 a year while living in the most expensive American cities, which is where the vast majority of America's journalists live. So there's really been a complete status revolution in terms of who makes up the journalist class. Is there a pivot point that we can look to when this transition took place? You know, it was like so many things that happened gradually and then all at once. I will say that I think that, you know, one of the major, major accelerants was um, the Watergate scandal. And, you know, it's fictional, not fictionalization, but it's, it's a, you know, portrayal in the, uh, the movie All the President's mm-hmm. Men, where essentially what you had was, you know, two plucky sex pots, right, played by Robert Redford and, um, and Dustin Hoffman, who, who took down a president, right? And that portrayal of journalism really lent the, the profession a kind of glamour, if you will, a sense that this was an important job, one that could bring fame and fortune. And that was really when you started to see people who came from the elites, you know, really coming into the profession. So, for example, you know, JFK, when he was in college at Harvard, he worked for the Harvard Crimson, which was the newspaper, the Harvard newspaper, but he would never have dreamed of becoming a journalist. It was such a low status job. And really after the Watergate scandal, you saw people who would have, you know, gone into other more elite, more high status professions sticking with the profession. Of course, they started demanding more money, higher salaries, which started bringing in even higher and more elite people. Um, and so that was sort of the, the first major accelerant. And then, of course, with the collapse of local news with the advent of the internet, you really saw again another major accelerant to where, you know, there was just no, there is no longer really a flourishing newspaper, local newspaper culture where, you know, in small towns across America, you would have people who, you know, maybe didn't have a college degree or working for people who didn't have a college degree, right? Reporting on the local news. Today, journalism is really very, very coastal, you know, as it's become more digital and as it's become harder to break into, it's really become a profession of a lot of economic privilege to where journalists, you know, they start out with these sort of really low salaries, but if you can hang on, you'll end up being in the top 10% at some point in your career. And where is the nexus between this change and and the, the wokeness that we see in the world of journalism today, at least in the world of elite mainstream media journalism? That's a great question and a really important one. So what I argue in the book is that wokeness looks like it's about race. It looks like it's a moral panic about race, you know, that's been cooked up in kind of university language and critical race theory and so forth. But actually, it's about class. What I argue in the book is that as journalists underwent this class status revolution, they really abandoned the working class of all races. And as they became increasingly highly educated at these elite institutions where it's very normal to talk about white privilege and oppression and marginalization of people of color, by the way, in a way that people of color don't talk about themselves, um, you know, this younger cohort brought this language into America's newsrooms um, to where around 2011, 2012, you started to see the skyrocketing of terms like, you know, woke terms like marginalization and people of color and white privilege and white supremacy, um, Islamophobia, all of these words that really you didn't see uh, in the mainstream press. They started to absolutely skyrocket 
skyrocket. And, you know, there's really two things going on here. The first is digital media. You know, digital media is very much about emotions. It's very much about getting your target audience emotionally engaged. Um, And so these words would reinforce among the highly affluent, highly educated liberal elite readers that the New York Times and the Washington Post and NPR is always courting the kinds of engagement that they were hoping to see. Um, And it also has to do with just journalists you know, not wanting to focus on this class divide that they've benefited from, not wanting to talk about the inequality that they have benefited from, right, that has that has elevated their fortunes at the expenses of the working class of all races. And what happened was by writing about this, by writing about race through this academic lens that, again, is very alien to, to communities of color and how they speak about themselves, but is very, very familiar to anybody who's gone to Harvard or Princeton or Yale or any of these elite universities, What they essentially did was they created a market among their highly educated, affluent liberal peers to where by 2015, white liberals had started to tell pollsters in surveys that they had these woke views about race to where they became far more extreme on race than black and Latino Americans, right? Because their media was pushing this academic framework and they used that to inform their public opinion. And now white liberals are much more extreme on race than black and Latino Americans. So I'll just give you one example. You know, throughout 2020, the only view you could read about the police at the New York Times was defund the police. That was the only acceptable version that, that could make it through the editorial process of the New York Times' op-ed pages. Meanwhile, 81% of black Americans opposed defunding the police. 81% said, told Gallup, you know, this is not some, you know, you know, National Review Fox News poll. They told Gallup they want the police to spend the same amount of time in their neighborhoods or more. And that's where you really see that disconnect between how affluent white liberals talk about these things and the way the communities that they are allegedly advocating on behalf of think about them. In many ways, we saw the first wave of this this kind of wokeness, the things you talk about within the academic world. Talk about how it made that jump so effectively from academia to the media. Isn't it amazing? You know, these, these kooky ideas that you never, you know, never would have made it out of academia became mainstreamed in the media because all of the journalists of the younger cohort are college educated, right? So they've all gone to Brown. They've all gone to, they've all taken these classes, right, in critical race theory. And they brought that framework with them to, in the institutions like the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC. So the real question is, why didn't anybody stand up to them, right? Why didn't their sort of Gen Z elders, their boomer elders say to them, look, you know, <laughs> nobody really thinks this way, right? Go, you know, go to any black community walk into a black church nobody talks about race this way this is this is cooked up in the universities right like we're not gonna let you take over our newsroom with this nonsense why didn't anybody stand up to them and i think that that is something i go into at length in the book that really has to do with how digital media works it was simply very very profitable so before what you would have was you know throughout the 20th century you would have most of journalism was being produced you know, in middle America, right? It was being produced for the the middle class. It was being produced in towns that were, you know, a mix of Republican and Democrats, right? And so, you know, and a lot of these towns were one paper towns, right? So the publisher could make a decision. He could either lean left or right and and get, you know, 50% of the town's readership, or he could report the news straight and get everybody, right? 
So even though the journalists themselves have always been more liberal than the average American, what you had was a countervailing force to that liberalism, to that crusader mentality in the business side of things, saying, look, we got to keep this straight because we want everybody to be able to read this and think of it as true and factual. Now, digital media, unfortunately, works in the opposite way. The, the business model of digital media measures success in terms of engagement. And, of course, the most extreme people are always the most engaged. So what you have now is where you used to have, you know, the New York Times and the Atlantic and the New Republic and CNN and MSNBC, and each of them was going for a different audience, a different sector of the population. Today, they're all going for the same highly educated, affluent, liberal elites and the thing that makes those people very engaged are things like, you know, Donald Trump, right? And the idea that America is still a white supremacy. And so now what you have is the business incentive, the profit motive is pulling in the same direction as the journalists own kind of very extreme views on race. Let's talk a little bit about the economic model, because digital journalism has gone through several phases as an economic model. Initially, there was this sense that that it was free, that people expected news and information to be free. Then there was the effort to bring in the advertising model to digital journalism, which ultimately collapsed. And now we have a subscription model where the New York Times, for example, gets 65% of its revenue from subscriptions. So there's even a greater incentive to satisfy those people that are subscribers and not to stray from that. Talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, when the Internet started, we all thought, oh, this is going to be this great democratizing force, right? Like, essentially, the cost of starting a publication is now zero, right? We're going to hear from everybody. There's going to be a real diversification of the news and people who make the news, right? And of course, that's not what happened at all. Um, The thing about digital media is, I can tell you as somebody who works in it, We just know everything about our readers. You know, once you know somebody's zip code, you know how much they make, you know what their hobbies are, you know what makes them click. I can tell you what words will make our readers click and what words will make them close the browser. There's so much information available on the back end that it's very, very easy to cater to specific audiences. And what you can do then is you can cater to elite audiences and tell advertisers you know, oh, our audience makes above this much money, you can then charge more for ads. So there's really been a consolidation around elite readerships due to the internet and the the pressures of digital journalism. And the New York Times has specifically been extremely adept at doing this. And it was very much by design. Um, So in 2014, they had a very bad year. And the current, um, today's, the current uh, publisher, A.G. Salzberger at the time, he was not the, the publisher yet, but he was charged with you know, charting the digital future of the New York Times. And he wrote this report called the Innovation Report. And the Innovation Report was essentially how the New York Times was going to hack the Internet. And what he called for was um, for the breakdown between audience development, which is a business concern, and editorial, which was always, you know, the newsroom's concern. He very explicitly wanted the journalists themselves to feel responsible for growing the audience, which is a business concern. He wanted there to be a two-way street between subscribers and journalists. He wanted, you know, the, the, the audience to really inform the direction the news takes, right? So what happens when you have that point of view is you essentially say to the most extreme of your readers, like, hey, what do you want to read? So it's really no surprise that five years later, 91% of New York Times readers are Democrats, right? They completely alienated anybody who didn't belong to the furthest, most extreme reach 
of the highly educated, highly affluent readership that they were courting. And of course, the nationalization of news was a a factor as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. You really can't understate that. Um, And that was, of course, you know, the result of the Internet as well. There were there were good things that come from that, you know, like would 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 Derek Chauvin be in prison if not for the nationalization of the news? Who knows? Right. Who knows if there hadn't been a rallying cry around him murdering George Floyd, if that would have ever made it to trial. Right. So there have, of course, there are positive things to this as well. You know, um, there's really important things happening, right? Like Republicans now calling for, for police reform and so forth. Would that have happened if we didn't have access to social media in the way that we do? Unfortunately, journalists have really shifted um, what, you know, their measuring of success from journalistic integrity, from kind of moral claim to informing the American people to this measure uh, called engagement, which only empowers the most extremes to, to direct the, the direction of your journalism. There's another inflection point, which really goes back to, to 2015 and Trump, in that the working class was being ignored to a certain extent by journalism, as you talk about. But Donald Trump weaponized that. Talk about that. Well, I don't know if I would put it that way. I, I think I think that increasingly working class Americans see themselves represented by populists like Trump. But the, I don't know that they're wrong to do so. I mean, the the you couldn't read about this because... You know, nobody wanted to talk about it, but his economic policy was quite I mean, it's 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 the stuff Bernie Sanders was advocating for in 2015. There was a lot of kind of protectionism, a lot of populism, the idea that our economic policy should be driven by working class jobs and how to create jobs with dignity and protect them. Of course, you know, because Trump is totally inconsistent and (laughs) not a good advocate for anybody except himself, you know, he was inconsistent about this. But, you know, the economy was working extremely well for the bottom 25 percent in 2019, historic black unemployment levels. Um, So I I really feel that it's sort of um, it's almost I wouldn't say he weaponized them. He actually did um, things that worked for the working class. You know, he got rid of NAFTA and and in its place, he signed the most pro-labor trade deal America has ever had. Um, You know, the trade war with China, the tariffs, um, you know, all subsidies for farmers. These are all things that, you know, Bernie Sanders himself was asking for. So I I think that um, I, I, I sort of resist the idea that the working class doesn't know what's good for them. I think they recognize that the Democrats have increasingly been leaning into a college-educated set. And and that class chasm of whether or not you have a college degree, it's very, very deep. And I think it's very, very dangerous. And it's it, it seems to me a shame that the Republicans have ended up on, on the right side of that. To a certain extent, though, Trump, in making the press what he called the enemy of the people, really did exacerbate this divide. Well, okay. So I don't want to defend Trump. I, I, you know, I didn't vote for him, but, but, but I, I will say, you know, the Steele dossier blew up, right? right. Um, the Steele dossier was a, 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 you know, collection of, uh, you know, quote unquote proof that Trump had ties to Russia. Russia even had compromise on him and was directing him this way and that way. And it really started this whole Russia gate, what turned out to be a conspiracy theory, right? It's the guy who behind the steel dossier was just arrested for lying to the FBI. And the, the media just ran with that. I mean, it was it was it confirmed everything that they wanted to believe. And so now, in retrospect, it's sort of hard to say. I mean, you know, he, 
fake news. Like it did turn out to be fake news. A lot of it turned out to be fake news. And I, I think that there was another option available, even at the time, you know, for Democrats to say, look, this guy's a bore. Yeah, he's gross. He tweets in a gross way. But, you know, look, he's got his right, his head on straight when it comes to economics. Let's kind of try to get where we can. And instead they waged what to me looks a lot like a class war against his supporters. Um, you know, so I, I feel I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. It's hard. I don't want to be the one defending him. But at the same time, a lot of that reporting turned out to be pretty fallacious. Talk about that class warfare, because because it is one of the things that the Trump understood and that he was able to market successfully. Yeah, I mean, I think he really made people feel like the people who have contempt for them hate him and every win of his is a finger in their eye, you know, and I I mean that when I I've, I've interviewed hundreds of Trump voters and the reasons they give mostly are things like abortion and, the you know, the courts, conservative justices and the economy. Um, I haven't met I've met maybe one who's who didn't you know, who didn't say something along the lines of I wish he wouldn't tweet. It's so undignified that the gross tweeting, the ba- brawling, what's with the brawling? He's supposed to be a president. You know, their reasons for voting for him were very reasonable. And yet they got cast across the mainstream media. And The New York Times was the worst malefactor on this, just as racist, you know. And so in 2020, when he doubled his support in the black community and he got almost half of Latino voters, they still called them white supremacists, right? It's like now they call them white adjacent. You know, it's just this, 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 this moral panic around race, labeling everything as white supremacist. It's a way of hiding the class divide, hiding the fact that we are still seeing a massive attrition of working class voters of all races away from the Democratic Party. And instead of asking, hey, what are we doing wrong? Hmm, maybe the salt deduction, you know, a, a tax write-off for liberal millionaires and billionaires is not a pro-working class agenda item, right? Instead of asking what we're doing wrong, it's so much easier to just label everybody who's on the other side as racist. And I fear that that's really the direction that the Democrats are going in. Well, we certainly saw this play out in the uh, Virginia gubernatorial election. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of what we we call race is really class in America. Now, I don't want to minimize the remaining places where race is still the number one factor. And I'm, I'm thinking now of you know, police brutality, uh, mass incarceration, intergenerational poverty in some neighborhoods um, of the descendants of slaves. You know, I support reparations. You know, there, there are areas that still are very much about race, but those areas are not areas anymore where you have a, a political divide. You know, Republicans have been at the forefront of prisoner releases. They've been at the forefront of criminal justice reform over the last decade. There, you know, Senator Tim Scott had a police reform bill that ironically was filibustered by the Democrats. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just the idea that we have a, a, a political polarization about racism or the evils of racism is just not true. We have a, a class chasm, a class divide and, you know, appalling levels of income inequality that are, that are being fueled by the fact that the liberals are increasingly affluent and on the side of the affluent and the college educated. And is there any reason to think that that's going to change? Do you see anything out there on the horizon that gives you even a, an, an inkling that there would be a shift from any of this? Oh, man, Jeff. Do you, do you no, feel hopeful? absolutely not. <laughs> I feel like the American people are too smart for this nonsense, and there's been a mass consumer boycott of the news, and I think that's a good thing, and I'm hoping that that will 
I think you are seeing places like the New York Times and CNN really starting to do some soul searching about the kinds of narratives they've pushed and um, just just how in their bubble they are, how 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 elitist they are and the use of real black pain in order to further the economic agendas of liberal elites, you know, just happening across, you know, our, our media outlets. is just I, I do think there is a little bit of soul searching. How far it'll go, I don't know, because like I said, I think that this kind of moral panic it really drives clicks, but I'm hope, I'm hoping that the the American people will write the boat, will write the ship where where the elites who claim to be better than them can't. <laughs> it drives clicks, and as we talked about before, it drives subscriptions, and and we're already seeing it in in an interesting way as we see some journalists that break off from the mainstream media and and go out on their own. We're seeing it with Substack, but in many ways that's reinforcing people's own ideas to begin with. It's reinforcing people's ideas to begin with. And, you know, Jeff, this is why I'm not a big cancel culture warrior. It's really, that to me is sort of rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, right? Right. It's people who already have a very big readership, right? You know, saying, I don't want to put up with this nonsense anymore. I'm going to take my readership and go to Substack and make $800,000, right? Because I got canceled from the New York Times or whatever it is. Now, obviously, cancel culture is ugly and gross. But I'm just not that invested in, you know, the fortunes of individual elites. I'm invested in the working class and the fact that they've been deplatformed en masse from all media, right? So to me, that's a much bigger problem. So, yeah, it's great. The Substack revolution is great. Joe Rogan is great. It's great that there are people who are sort of still producing media outside of the bubble. That's great, you know. But the the larger problem, the deeper problem is the class chasm that we just never talk about and just the huge amounts of income inequality that, you know, truckers, right, we're sitting here talking about a supply chain crisis, you know, like <laughs> truckers make $35,000 a year. The people in charge of getting everything we put in our mouths to survive into our homes, you know, they don't have benefits. They don't have unions. Like, you know, this this stuff is terrible, but you will never turn on CNN and hear about that. You'll turn on Fox News and hear about truckers. You'll, they'll interview some trucker, and it's like, why? Why is that happening on Fox but not in the New York Times or on CNN? It's, it's sort of a disaster, don't you think? Well, I think we have, uh, we have two countries, and never the twain shall meet. <laughs> and unfortunately, as we, we said a few minutes ago, uh, there's, there's, the economic incentives for it to change just aren't there. The, the incentives yep. really yep. are in further tribalism. That's where the economic yep. incentives are. Yep, it's so true. You know, when I talk to high school students, they often say to me, like, one of the first questions is always, aren't you just describing capitalism? Because <laughs> they're really smart. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, is, it, does the New York, is the New York Times supposed to have a higher mission than turning a profit? I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. Batia Unger-Saragond, her book is Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Batia, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh my gosh, it was such an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.